Morning, church. Uh, it's been great to be led by Royce this morning, hasn't it? Um, great song choices, Royce, that just so affirm who God is and, and how He is. And I think one of the great things then of, of us gathering as the church is that, you know, we can, we can sing these songs at, at home by ourselves in the shower or whatever, and that's amazing, but it's because uh, it always is amazing in the shower. But, <clears throat> but when we come together, exactly as Royce said, sometimes there's those, those songs, those things that, that we can't sing, yet we gather with everyone else and they are singing it for us and with us and, and to us and it speaks to us. So it's great to uh, be singing and affirming such great and glorious things about our God together. How about we pray? God, we just thank you again for, for the wonder of who you are, your greatness and the affirmation of that, the reminder of that, that we've already had together in our time today. I pray as we come to your word that we are open to hear what you would say to us, that we are open to uh, see you afresh, to know you more, to follow you more. Uh, and may we be impacted by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In John chapter 5, Jesus um, is in Jerusalem, and he's at the, the pool of Bethesda. And, and the pool is surrounded by all these blind and lame and, and crippled people, paralyzed, you know, who are in desperate need uh, desperate hope, rather, of healing, or well, any desperate need, but, but in desperate hope of healing, if only they could find their way into the pool as the water stirs. And there's one man there who's been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus, picking his way through the people, maybe he's stepping over some, maybe he's navigating through, through the path or around them, he comes to this one man and he asks him, Do you want to be well? Now, it seems like a pretty unnecessary question, doesn't it? I mean, of course he wants to get well. Who wouldn't? It's why he's by this pool for 38 years, you know, trying to get in. But it's interesting that, that in the account that this man actually doesn't answer the question. All he does is give the reasons why he's still there beside the pool unhealed, which prompts us to think, why wouldn't he respond to Jesus' question just with a resounding, yes. And as I reflect on it, I think a key factor would be that, that as bad and as challenging as his life was, he knew it. He knew what it was. He knew what was involved. He knew what it was like. It was comfortable and familiar to him. Yes, it had its pains and its distresses and its, and its you know, sufferings, but he knew what they were. The sudden offer of healing, then, is actually somewhat terrifying because it means living in a new and an unfamiliar way. I mean, yes, it might be objectively better, but from his experience, what would it mean? What would it look like? For one thing, it would mean engaging in the hard work of living differently. It would mean leaving behind patterns of thought and behavior and identity that characterized his life as an invalid. And then both instantly and progressively taking up a new way of living. Now, essentially, that is God's call on all of us who by faith claim Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. We need to put off this old way of living in sin and for self and instead put on Christ and pattern our lives after him. It means leaving what we're comfortable with, what we're familiar with, however, however good it might be or however bad it might be. 
and to move into the new and the unknown and the sometimes scary of what it means to take up a new life in Jesus. Now, this is no small thing. The ancient Israelites, for, for instance, they lived in slavery in Egypt. They were put to backbreaking work, you know, creating monuments and buildings and structures, hard work all for the glory of the Pharaoh. And they groaned under their oppression. But then God, through his servant Moses, led them out of Egypt, led them out of their slavery and into freedom. Yet they were not long out of Egypt before they started grumbling and complaining. The new and the unknown, it was unfamiliar, it was unmapped out, it was uncertain, it was scary. And before you know it, they wanted to go back. They did not want to get well. In Numbers 14, we read that all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken in plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a different leader and go back to Egypt. Well, God who had affected their salvation, who had set them free from, from Egypt, would not have a bar of it. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness your bodies will fall. Every one of you, twenty years old and more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land that I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except for Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. And that's what happened. They wandered in the wilderness without home or land for 40 years until that whole generation, including Moses himself, had died and only Caleb and Joshua remained. And that's all the backdrop for where we are this morning as we uh, turn to Joshua chapter 3. Because now Joshua has taken on leadership of this next generation of Israelites and he's now finally leading in them into the land that God has promised for them. What they face, what's before them is new and unknown. It's unfamiliar and uncharted territory. And even the way that the story is told in this chapter, it just reveals, reveals what happens to us bit by bit. So it unfolds before us as well. But what we seem to be able to tell is that this generation has learnt from the mistakes of the previous one. Joshua chapter 2 finishes with the spies declaring, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. And so they're ready and eager now to move forward into their future rather than cling to and stay in their past. And so we read Joshua chapter 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing the river. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go 
since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. So here they are. In the nation of Israel, they've wandered the wilderness for 40 years. It's the next generation. They've come now to camp by the Jordan River. And they're ready to cross over and move into the promised land, the, God, the land that God had promised to give to them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where they would have a home and security and prosperity and all of that. But the land that is before them is new and unknown. They've never been this way before. They've never been into this space. It's new and unknown to them. And so because of that, they are to follow the Ark of the Covenant. They're to follow this symbol of God's presence with them. They can venture into this new land despite not knowing what it will hold because God is with them. And because God is going before them and he's then leading them into it. God had earlier said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, don't be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Even as you go into this new place that you've never been before, I will be with you and I will be leading you. Now the great advantage that the Israelites had is that they could see God going before them, in that they had this tangible ark that was leading the way and the priests carrying it. But the truth is for us too, as we move into the new and the unknown, whether it's something that's positive that we're excited about, whether it's something that's daunting and uncertain. As we move into the unknown, we can know that God is going before us. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't send us into it and kind of lag behind you know, as backup in case we need him. No, he, he's already there before us. He's already gone ahead of us, leading us through. And in that place before us, leading us into it. As Joshua now says, in that place, God will do what only he can do. Verse 5, Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. The holy God is about to act amongst them. So he calls them to make sure that they too are holy, that that they've consecrated themselves probably by, by washing and then marking themselves as set apart as his people. And they are to do so because God is about to do amazing things. And the same word is used back in Exodus in anticipation of the plagues that God will bring against the Egyptians that led to the exodus of the Israelites. It's the same word about those wonders and mighty deeds that God does to demonstrate that he is with his people and acting for his people. Now, notice, though, that that we still don't know what God will do. It just says that God will do amazing things, but but we don't know what those things are. I I did something the other day. I don't remember what it was like. It's probably like leaving the washing machine lid open. That's something I always do. And, And Cohen just pipes up with, you know, classic dad move. And, and I think this is kind of a classic God move. He, he, will do, he, he says that he'll do something, but we don't know exactly what it will look like. He's going to do amazing things, but we don't know what they are. And so we have to trust in him, not in what we know about what's coming up, but, but in what we know about who he is. We have to trust in him and not in our knowledge and grow our faith in him as we do so. 
to, to walk forward following him where he leads. And so the story continues in verse 6. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And that, that verse seems a little bit random, but still have that in mind for next week because it'll make sense then. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So gradually, as the story unfolds, we get more detail of what's happening. First, the priests go in front of the people. Then they're told that they'll stand in the river. And finally, we're told what will happen once they do so, that the water will stop flowing. And this story is how life unfolds, isn't it? It's, it's a bit at a time. We don't know the end result. We don't know the destination. We don't know how things are going to turn out. We just know the bit that we need to do next. It's a bit like God telling Abraham to go to the land that I will show you. I'm not telling you where it will be, but I'm telling you to leave now, and and that's the bit that he's to do. I'm not showing you yet, but just get moving. And there's two things here that God is reinforcing to the Israelites. First, it says that he wants to affirm to them that he's with Joshua, just as he was with Moses. When Moses had led the people across the Red Sea, and then the waters returned and and it drowned the Egyptian pursuers, Exodus 14 says that then when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Well, in the next chapter of Joshua that Roderick will cover next week, it says that on, on this day here, that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. God, in his grace, was acting so as to publicly and unequivocally affirm Joshua as Moses' successor in leading the people of Israel. He was making a statement to the Israelites and, realistically, probably to Joshua himself, that he was with Joshua and that his presence and his power was available and for him as he led the people into this new new land. And so the second thing that God wants the Israelites to know, yes, that he's with Joshua as he leads them, but also that he's then among the people and that he will will give to them this land that is before them. As the ark goes before them and into the water of the Jordan, the, the the flow of water will stop and they'll walk through on dry land. And this, God says, will be the sign to them that he will follow through his promise and to give them all that he has said that he will take them into the land and he'll clear the way for them to do so. Now, I want us to pause here for a sec. 
could be a tangent, but um, I think it's interesting. So, so in a moment, we'll read about how the river did stop flowing and about how it piled up in this heap a distance away and how Israel could cross then on dry ground. Now, I want to ask, does that sound familiar at all? It does, and I mentioned it just moments ago when talking about Moses having parted the Red Sea for the people to cross and walk on dry land to escape the Egyptian army that's pursuing them. We're in a different location here, but God is doing much the same miracle for his people. And the question is, why? Well, remember Numbers 14 that we read earlier. There it said you know, to that generation that not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home. And so that has then been fulfilled. And so later in Numbers, there's this census of the Israelites. And of the hundreds and thousands who were counted then, not one of those were those who had gone through the Red Sea. For the Lord had told those Israelites they would surely die in the wilderness, and not one of them was left except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. So this is now a new generation. This generation had not crossed through the Red Sea. They had not seen God's mighty deeds on their behalf at that time. So he's giving them now their own experience of God's action, their own experience of God for them, so that they can have faith and confidence as they continue to go forward and have trust in him as they move into the land. I also think it's interesting that God acted in power you know, through parting the, the seas to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, out of their slavery there, and he now acts in power again as he leads them into the promised land. So his power is for us both to put off sin and self and also to put on Christ and walk in his life. It's not that God saves us from our sin and then says, all right, there you go, make the best of it. And it's not even that God says, you know what, I'll help you live like me, but you just need to sort out your sin stuff first and get that sorted. No, God, God acts both times, in both directions. He, he frees us from sin and empowers us to live his new life in Christ. So, That's tangent over. Coming back to the text, verse 14. When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the sea to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan, and they stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Well, God has been clear that he will give this land to the Israelites. But they still have to act. God has said that he will stop the flow of the river, but they still need to step into it. And even with God's promise, let's not skim over how daunting that would have been. The Jordan's in flood, it says. So presumably it's fast, deep, wide. And the priests are carrying the ark 
And they need to step into the water before anything will happen. What if it doesn't? They're going to look pretty foolish. But they act in faith. They take God at his word and they believe that he's for them. And that's then when the miracle comes. So often we want God to act before we do anything. We want to stay comfortable on our couch while God then does his mighty deeds in front of us. We want the miracle and then we'll have faith in him. And look, God does act that way sometimes. I'm not saying that that God doesn't do that. But faith is trusting in the certainty of what is unseen. And it takes us moving forward. It takes us stepping into the river to demonstrate that our trust is actively and in fact in him. It's as we walk into the new life that God has for us that we begin to experience it. Thanks, Royce. I'll say it again. It's as we walk into the new life that God has for us that we begin to experience it. So do you want to be well? Do you want to walk into the new and the unknown and there experience the, God, the good that God has for you? Or would you prefer to stay where it's comfortable and it's familiar and yet miss out? on what God offers to you. God is always calling us onwards. Whether we've been a Christian for five minutes or five years or 50 years, God is always calling us onwards to more. Consider Paul's words to the Philippians that Darren will talk about tonight. Paul says, this is, Not that I've obtained all this or that I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and leaving that there and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There's more ahead. As C.S. Lewis writes in The Last Battle, we need to go further up and further in. And, and as we do so, we'll see that God is already there ahead of us. And he's then inviting us to follow his lead. And we can know that he's ready to act for us there. But we, as Joshua and the Israelites did, we need to act in trust and follow his call. We need to take that step into the river to then see the waters pile up. If we, it's as we walk into the new life that God has for us. As we go into the new and the unknown that is ahead, that we will then begin to experience the fullness of the life that God has for us. It doesn't happen as we stay still. If we stay on this side of the Jordan, nothing happens and we miss out. So God calls us into the new and unknown as we follow him and into the fullness of life that he will give to us there. So let's, let's pray that we would embark on that adventure. God, as we consider the new and unknown that is ahead of us, help us to realize that as unfamiliar as it might be, that it is what you have promised to us. 
It's what you would give to us. It's the, it's the life of more and abundance. It's, it's the with Christ life that you would have for us. And yeah, it's unfamiliar and uncertain to us, God, because we're very comfortable living our way. We're very comfortable staying in our sin and our self and what's familiar. But you call us on from that, further on and further up. And so I pray, God, that we'll follow you as you lead us. That, and we'll demonstrate that our faith is truly in you as we then step into the, the river, whatever it is before us. That we'll step into the life that you would have for us and there experience it. To see you act, to know you with us and for us. To have you prove yourself worthy of our faith and our trust and for our faith in you to, to grow as we, as we see that. We pray, God, that we wouldn't make excuses for why we're just staying where we are, but that we trust you to step into what you would have for us. We thank you for, for the example of Joshua and the Israelites and the encouragement that they are to us today. You know, this ancient story that yet speaks to us today and calls us uh, to press on towards what you have called us to. And so we pray, God, may we do that. May you impact us by your word. May you call us on and may we follow as you lead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.